Hello and welcome to Cloud9fin, a podcast and all things leverage finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything in between. I'm Bianca Borer, your host in London. So let's get into it. First up, the top headlines in Europe this week. Primary is up and running again. Issuers that launched new bond deals this week include German pharma company Grunenthal, chemicals manufacturer Cab, and biotech company Kedrion. And then there's Travelodge, which is out with Euro and Sterling bonds, and which gets a special mention for being one of the first companies in our coverage universe to name drop ChatGBT and risk factor section of its OM. In loans, our reporters Mikhail Skypala and Laura Thompson revealed that French cleaning business Group Services France is offering a 446 million euro term loan B at a heavily discounted OID of 94. There's still plenty of amend and extend activity as well. Dutch retailer Action is looking to extend a big chunk of its March 2025 term loan to September 2028, as well as extending its revolver to 2028 and upsizing the facility. In Spain, call center operator Kronosnet is looking to take out its term loan A with a new fungible add-on loan, and breadmaker Monbank is looking to extend its term loan B from 2025 to 2027. Dutch business services provider TMF has also kicked off an A&E to push its 2024 term loan maturity out to 2028. And we've had lots of inbound calls from clients this week after a big credit analysis piece. Our colleague Nathan Mitchell dug into EG Group, highlighting its slightly intimidating maturity wall in 2025, when the company has nearly $9 billion worth of debt coming due. Okay, now for the credit section of the podcast, where we delve into what's topical in the market, whether it's primary or distressed. This week, we have editor Chris Haffenden on to talk about German real estate company Adler, which has been in the UK high court in the last couple of weeks for its debt restructuring. So Chris, what are your overall impressions of the three-day sanction hearing? A little chaotic. It was sort of crammed into a very, very short time frame, just three days, and it meant that most of the substantive issues, including things such as the German law, aspects of it didn't really get the airtime we were hoping for and there was also late evidence that was submitted that made it a lot worse and therefore they had to sort of truncate some of the closings which meant that that had to be put in sort of written format and the company side one was 122 pages long um also i think it would have been better if it was heard by one of the more high five profile judges such as tony zaccaroli or trower in terms of people who have actually really been working very very hard on the formation of the law so i think that was also a problem and why is this case so important I think there's a number of things, but uh, I think it's really about the temporal seniority of, of bonds and how the sort of parry pursued treatment of bonds can be changed in an insolvency scenario. So the way that this deal is being put together could have sort of wide ranging implications, given the fact that it looks like the plan has been approved, which is something that we haven't seen before. And I think there's also bits in there about the fairness issues of, of the deal and also the discretion of the courts to uh, approve or not to approve. And then finally, I think there's a bit in there about the valuations that are being used as a basis for the plan and the sort of challenges and the points around what they've actually challenged. I think that's also important too. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, can you tell us what has happened to Adler in the past couple of years and just give us a kind of quick overview of what their restructuring plan is. Yeah, sure. It's, um, very, very quickly, it started with this short seller report a couple of years ago. The concerns about the quality of the real estate assets, some of the related party transactions, allegations that it was being shadow run by Sefad Khanna, 
and also then the company tried to alleviate some of those concerns by selling some of their yielding assets above book value but it was clear that that wasn't really enough to restore confidence and that the development assets were more troublesome. Then we had the auditor resigning last spring and then during last summer with the higher rate environment and a big slowdown in German real estate market that really meant that some of the sales that they were looking to um, put through to try and repay some of the short dated maturities wasn't going to happen. So in October last year there was a group of bondholders cobbled together uh, a package of 937.5 million in new money and that would repay some of the shorter dated bonds and also allow much more time for a sort of managed sale process to be put in place to try and improve the recoveries. But the problem was that there wasn't equal treatment under the plan. So Adler real estate subsidiary bonds for 23 and 24 were being repaid from some of the money but some of the other bonds in Adler were actually elevated to one and a half lean status and with the new money as a first lean that created a much bigger maturity wall in 2025 and the company needed to get consents of all the bond classes to actually get the plan over the line and they couldn't get 75% approval from all the note holders. It was the long dated note holders who weren't very happy about it. And that meant the company needed to find an alternative to actually implement the plan. Yeah, I remember this whole situation. They did a bit of coverage on it at the time. So why did the 2029s oppose uh, the restructuring? I think they were concerned about the, the tail risk. So their view was that if the disposals didn't go to plan, they didn't get the money they were looking to get or they were delayed. You know, they were sitting at the back of the maturity queue and that the other bondholders ahead of them could you know, could act before they could. They did present an alternative plan, which was seen as a straw man, but they did try and sort of bolt that out over time. But that wasn't really discussed in the court case. But it's, it's something that's out there, but it hasn't really been seriously taken on by the company. So why, why did Adler choose this UK restructuring plan route? Because they really had to implement it to get around the 29. So they had to cram them down. And the UK restructuring plan is the only process in the UK that you can use the cram down feature. Potentially, they could have used Starug, which is the new German process, which also has the ability to cram down. And the bonds, a lot of the bonds are under German law, but that's not tried and tested. So that the view was that you would have to you know, do the UK restructuring plan. And I suppose the other interesting thing about the UK restructuring plan is sort of how the classes are formed, because you need one class to cram down the others. So the question is, you know, how could they do that? One of the things that could be thought about was whether they would actually do a single class scheme. So effectively lump everyone together, all the bonds are senior unsecured notes and they're pari pursue and just jam them down from like an overall voting. Or they could have used one of the other bond classes, such as the Adler 24s that were being elevated under the plan and actually use them to ram down the others and say they're a separate class because they have different rights and interests. But then that's a little bit messy because the 24s aren't elevated until the plan actually comes into effect. So when they're coming to the court, they're exactly the same as the others. And then also there's an argument about whether if you, as the company decided to do, when they went down the classes route and actually having six classes, that you're actually engineering this. So you only need one of those six classes of notes to, uh, you know, to force a deal through. Now, Adler would say that because of the fact there are different rights and interests, the sort of fairest way is to split it into six, whereas the other side will say, no, it's a construct and you're just giving yourself more options you know, to cram someone down. You've got six chances. Right. So, I don't know, give us a bit of an idea of what happened just before the convening hearing. Yes. Yeah, so the 29s were obviously getting frustrated. Um, one of the things they decided to do was to accelerate on their notes. So two of the note holders actually accelerated on their bonds. 
Um, they also are complaining about the fact that they didn't really have enough time and information to challenge the um, the UK restructuring plan. So there are a lot of things that you would normally do at the convening hearing stage, like, like look at the jurisdiction, the formation of classes. All of that was being pushed to the end, so that would be pushed to the, uh, the sanction hearing stage. Why did the bondholders accelerate? Quite clever. They said that the UK restructuring plan had already been determined under Gate Group as being an insolvency process. So under the notes of Ents of Default, one of the things is entering into an insolvency process. So they claimed that on the launch of the UK restructuring plan, that was an insolvency process and therefore that was an event of default. And I think also the other interesting thing about it was that it was clear by doing that in Germany and putting a claim into the German courts, they wanted to create uncertainty and to potentially even get a, a ruling from the German courts to sort of put to the UK court and to create some uncertainty about the jurisdiction. Okay. And, and you were present for most of the, uh, the hearings, sat in the back with all the other crammed in with all the press. So what, what, what were the key areas of focus for the lawyers? I think valuation. So the big thing was that there was a plan, the, the, the model and the plan that was put together by the company to say that there was actually going to be power recovery. And that, and that was based on a business model and based on sort of valuations from property valuers. And then they actually attached a model on that to sort of forecast what they thought was going to happen to the market within the next two or three years. And I think they were picking apart that to try and say, well, no, we don't think there is power recovery. And if you think about it, if you see, see where the bonds were trading prior to the, the plan being put in front of the courts, the bonds were trading at deep discounts, which implied that the market didn't re believe there was a power recovery you know, from this. I think the other thing that was being very, very closely watched was this whole concept under a UK restructuring plan of relative alternative. Because the 29s are saying that if the relevant alternative here is an insolvency, and under insolvency in the UK sort of case law, normally what happens is if you're in insolvency, then the, uh, the maturity doesn't matter. So what happens is everyone gets lumped together in terms of their priority. So if you're a senior unsecured note, you're alongside all the other senior unsecured notes, and then you'll just get a pro rata recovery under insolvency. So this is the sort of key point is that the alternative was an insolvency, and if it was an insolvency, they would get the same as the others, whereas under this plan, they're looking to give them sort of different outcomes. And the thing that, that the ad hoc group were very, very keen to to do was to try and get into the company's, what they called the company's pale into insignificance point, that if it's par recovery and the plan does give better recoveries to creditors under a liquidation scenario and everyone gets par, the treatment doesn't matter. You know, you're going to get the same outcome. So therefore, it's not an issue. But the ad hoc group is then trying to get a lot of uncertainty into that by saying, well, we don't believe some of the inputs into the plan. We think there's a lot of uncertainty about where the real estate market's going to go. And therefore, there has to be absolute certainty. Otherwise, you, know, you can't approve the plan. And why did they focus so much on valuation and the underlying assumptions? I think it was to create that uncertainty to back to the par issue. And I think where it was interesting was that they said, well, Knight and Frank, that were the experts for the ad hoc group, they were trying to pick them apart and say, well, all you're doing is you're just doing it via a model, finger in the air, you're just looking at various clusters of assets and then trying to extrapolate evaluation from them. But I think where they probably did land a couple of punches was on the development assets because their expert witness had actually acted on behalf of potential buyers for some of Adler's development assets. And then they went through that in their evidence that they felt on based on that work that they'd done, that those development assets that they'd looked at, so the eight out of the 20, they thought were 
valued probably 50% too high. If you extrapolate that out to the whole development portfolio, that could actually get you to a point of where there might be impairment and you might not get the power recovery. So the written reasoning, which usually comes up from the judge, and why is that so important? Unfortunately, just due to the time pressure, Justice Lee said when he actually handed down, he literally came into court last week and said, I am going to say yes or no whether I'm going to sanction the plan. I'm not going to give any oral reasoning behind that. I will give you a judgment as soon as possible, but I'm just going to say yes or no. And the ad hoc group have already indicated that they will appeal, but if you go to the Court of Appeal, you actually have to be going to the Court of Appeal about process or points of law rather than the facts that have been presented to the court. So they really need to look closely at the judgment and what it says in terms of his reasoning so they can actually then decide on what point of law that they could go after. And we think that they'll probably go after the sort of parry pursue treatment, but we're not 100% sure until we see that. And it should appear in the next day or two. The view is it should come at some point this week. Well, yeah, I suppose that's my final question. What, what do you think is going to happen next? Yeah, they will appeal. I think the Court of Appeal, I, I would suspect the Court of Appeal will want to hear it. I also suspect that Justice Richard Snowden, who's Justice gone to the Court of Appeal, would be very interested in actually hearing this as a point of law. You know, he's been heavily involved in UK restructuring plan in the past, and I think if that was something that he'd probably want to uh, get his teeth into. The interesting bit will be about remedies. You know, the plan has got to the point now where the money has to be dispersed by the 29th to repay the Adler Real Estate 23s. They want to get this in, in place. So what can you do? Can you really derail the whole plan? You know, could you actually get an injunction against dispersing the funds and stopping the amendment of the notes? Or is that unrealistic? Or is it, you know, so what is the potential remedy, even if it does get to the Court of Appeal and they win in the Court of Appeal? You might not be able to reverse the transaction. So what are they looking for? Right, okay. Well, definitely one that we're going to be keeping an eye on and an important precedent for the restructuring market, I'm sure. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks for having me. Now it's time for the legal section of the podcast. I have Brian Deering here with me, our head of European High Yield Research, to talk about covenant trends last year, based on a recent report that Ninefin has put out. So, Brian, what did we see in 2022, aside from a dry spell in terms of new deals? Yeah, there was definitely a dry spell. But thanks for having me on, Bianca. I think the, it's a really interesting time this week, especially we've had five deals launched, which has kept us pretty busy. But yeah, like you said, we re recently released a full report on what happened in 2022. And uh, what we saw basically was there were only 35 deals. 26 of those were sponsored. And funny enough, 17 of those were in January and February last year. So really, it was uh, a front-loaded year. But throughout the rest of the year, what we really saw were people just doing refinancing transactions where they needed to. And people were doing it with alternative deal structures. So we saw a lot more exchanges than you might expect. And those exchanges were complicated with tender offers going at the same time, uh, mostly because issuers are a little bit more beholden now to their current investor base than they were in the past. So um, lawyers were coming up with creative ways to ensure that uh, current investors could roll over on a cashless basis or, or even if they needed to cash out and cash back in. They're making all of this possible just to ensure that... Um, you know, the issuers are getting the best possible transaction done. So I think it was it was an interesting year from that perspective. And we talk about all of that in the report and we kind of dive into some of those unique uh, transactions. But in 2023 in Q1, we're, we've already seen uh, 23 deals and a couple taps and 10 of those deals happened in the last three weeks. So we're starting to see some green shoots, which is really good. And a lot of the trends that we saw in 2022 have kind of continued into Q1. Um, frankly, and, and I think it'll probably just carry on through the year as people are just trying to get deals done and not be aggressive. 
Okay, interesting. I guess going back to 2022 again, what, what was the broad picture you saw in terms of uh, covenant flexibility for issuers? Yeah, I think what was interesting about 2022, given the structures that people were using, so like I said, those exchanges and refinancing transactions, is for the most part, frankly, covenants held steady. So people weren't really trying to push the boat out with something complex. What they were trying to do was get a deal done. So overall, if you look at restricted payments and permitted investments capacity, for example, and that's just you know value leakage out of the group, to put it in plain English. If you look 2021 versus 2022, they held steady. So if it was an LBO transaction on day one, they had the, the ability to do two times EBITDA, RP or PI. Uh, and if it was not an LBO, they had 1.6 times. And that was the same across both years. So I think the broad point is just that People were trying to get a deal done and they didn't want to shock anyone. So it held steady. And given these were refinancing transactions, people also just kept the documentation identical. So for the most part, they, they didn't change anything. So if EBITDA held steady or increased a little bit, then that's where their, their baskets would have held. And you even saw that with the debt covenant as well. So in non-LBO land, the debt covenant capacity on day one held steady at 2.6 times for the average deal. And in LBOs, it actually dropped a little bit. Um, from four times in 2021 down to three and a half times in 2022. So overall, maybe a, a touch of tightening, but without a lot of deals, it's kind of hard to call it a trend. So keep our eye on it. Okay. And did you see any pushback from investors? Yeah, I mean, that that's really interesting, I think, because one of the big things that happened last year, given that people were just focused on getting deals done to keep themselves you know, moving forward, a lot of the deals were pre-marketed much more than they would have in the past. Whereas in the past, the deal would have been pre-marketed simply because maybe it was a very new credit or a complex credit and they needed more time to explain the deal to an investor. Now they pre-marketed a deal just to make sure that people would actually be interested in coming in it's a little embarrassing for an issuer to go out into the market and then need to publicly withdraw a little less embarrassing if you only talk to a handful of accounts find out where they're at figure out what the pricing might be and see if it's palatable to the executive team at the issuer and then you go public so in terms of pushback it's a bit hard to track it because a lot of the pushback if it happened would have happened behind closed doors rather than um, out in the public. So we actually only saw four deals with public pushback. And we talk about those in the report as well as on our pushback tracker on the website. But most of it, I presume, happened in pre-marketing. And I think in Q1 uh, and Q2 so far, only a couple of weeks in, what we're seeing is that trend's carrying on. So, so far there have been 23 deals um, as of today. And there have been at least, I'm aware of at least four five or six uh, deals that were pre-marketed and there may be more that, that I'm not aware of, but that's quite a lot. So we're looking at least a quarter of the deals. And so I think that trend will probably continue. And there's also less pushback just because people are doing deals on their previous documentation and maybe making a few tweaks. So we'll see when the more aggressive sponsor deals come out where they're doing some you know, some interesting LBOs, that's typically where you see the, the boat get pushed out. But until you see lots of those, you probably will see pretty conservative or similar covenant packages carrying on. Okay, cool. I mean, we'll keep our eyes peeled here at Ninefin. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for the Please Raise Responsibly section of the podcast, which I'm going to pass over to our ESG team. Thanks, Bianca. Welcome to the Please Raise Responsibly segment of the podcast. My name is Jennifer Munnings. I'm an ESG analyst at Ninefin. And today I'm sitting down with another one of our ESG analysts, Dan Power, to discuss insights into our ESG data and what they indicate for Levfin. Thanks for sitting down with me today, Dan. Thanks for having me, Jen. All right, let's jump into it. In your piece, ESG within Levfin, Issuer Data Insights, you analyze our rapidly growing database with ESG data on over 500 companies. 
What does your report tell us about the state of ESG and high yield? So generally, I think that reporting quality has definitely improved over the past few years. And also, the number of disclosures made by companies has also definitely increased as well. But I still think that there is an issue and a question around how fit for purpose this data is. So we're seeing differing methodologies between companies. And while this is still prevalent with environmental data, it's especially prevalent for social data. So just to give you an example of one of the metrics we track, lost time injury frequency rate, which is a standardized metric for calculating injury rates of a company, 16% uh, of our issuers report this standardized figure. But when you expand that and look at how many companies in our data set report an injury rate, that rate increases to 55%. So this is an indication of just how much uh, our database lacks standardization in terms of recording metrics and also the methodologies behind it. Yeah, exactly. And this sounds like this is an issue generally with social data because environmental data, for example, over 50% of our issuers report scope one, scope two, and scope three emission data and energy consumption, but social data is particularly lacking. Yeah, for sure. So I think for social data, there's a lot of it. Companies are reporting a lot of social data. Uh, it's not that they're not reporting it. It's just that the standardization of it is is kind of all over the place. And what they're measuring differs from company to company. I will say on environmental metrics that there is more standardization in the sense that companies are report all reporting scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. But the methodologies behind that, there are differences between them. And that's definitely something we pulled out in the report. So given the variances in companies reporting style and the reporting dates, are ESG disclosures able to effectively guide asset allocation? Well, I think that in the high yield, at least, ESG funds are not just normal high yield corporate bond funds with an ESG label slapped on top of it. I think we definitely saw in the top 20 holdings of ESG funds, we saw companies that generally had low environmental impacts. So these may not be companies that you would find in an impact fund, but these are also not necessarily companies that should be excluded from an ESG fund. So there has definitely been an evolution in terms of the holdings that are in ESG funds. It's no longer the case that ESG funds are, are simply normal investment funds that just have an ESG label and a higher rate associated with them. So we are in fact seeing a difference between ESG funds holdings and how do you think they compare to non-ESG funds? So there is a lot of overlap for sure. The the top 20 holdings of ESG funds versus non-ESG funds is about 60%. So yeah, there is a lot of overlap. But I would say that at least what our ESG team at Ninefin has deemed worse offenders do not feature as highly in ESG funds as non-ESG funds. So an example of this is Carnival, which is a cruise line company that's been involved in a number of serious social and environmental violations. It features significantly less in ESG funds than non-ESG funds. And similarly, Teva, which is a company that while it has issued sustainability-linked debt, it's been featured quite prevalent in the opioid crisis and has a significant amount of litigation surrounding its involvement. And then again, that's another company that probably its inclusion in an ESG fund is questionable, and it also features significantly less in ESG funds than non-ESG funds. So it does seem like ESG data is having an influence on the way that investors act. So 
Before we wrap up, what do you think will be the next big data challenge for investors? So I think there's going to be two things. I think that we're going to see an increased need to map company revenue, capex, and opex to the taxonomy. The EU taxonomy still isn't complete. And so this is a challenge for some industries. But I think that generally there's going to be an increasing push. And we're already seeing reporting where companies are mapping their operations to the EU taxonomy. I think this is going to increase, especially for the fixed income market with the EU's green bond standard coming into play. So this is going to be something that I think is going to be a big drive forward in terms of mapping around taxonomy. And I think this is really good in terms of helping guide capital to sustainable investments. The other area I see is more innovation in terms of what we're measuring when we speak about environmental and sustainability related metrics. So I think biodiversity is an area that we're going to see an increase on. We're already seeing companies beginning to leverage certain reporting tools to report their proximity to biodiversity sensitive areas. And I think we're also going to see an increase in companies reporting in terms of their operations impact on certain nature related issues like water stress and deforestation and other nature based metrics. Yeah, exactly. Proximity to biodiversity is one of the additional PAIs for the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. And the Task Force for Nature Disclosures is expected to release their final version in September. So that should definitely increase the rate of nature-related disclosures from companies. I agree. Yeah, for sure. And we're already seeing companies in 2023 releasing metrics on this as well. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today with me, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jen. Hope to have you back soon. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And please let us know if you have any feedback. You can reach out to us at any time by emailing team at ninefin.com. Check in next week to hear the latest on US markets with our colleague, Will Cager-Smith. And we'll be back the week after that. See you then. (laughs) 